The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good to talk to you again from self-isolation. Hope you're doing well. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, everybody. So your thoughts, uh, when we talked last, uh, there were still some question about interest rates. Uh, it appears, obviously, interest rates have gone down again. Your thoughts on how that affects everything? Yeah, this is a, um, Don, maybe I'll start. And sure. just uh, when we think about the prime rate, and of course, there's the Bank of Canada rate, which we know is now down to uh, 0.25%, 0.25%. And then the rate that our banks charge us for borrowing money has recently been lowered to 2.45%, 2.45%. Now, that's a decline over the last couple of weeks of 1.5% in terms of the rate that we're being charged on our floating rate uh, loans or if you're borrowing at prime. Uh, and so it's a pretty significant stimulus in terms of the overall economy, and uh, and really that's the goal. Um, now, the, the, the reality is, is that I don't think it's making much of a difference right now because nobody's spending money. So even if, uh, if you think about the economy getting back on track, uh, the interest rates or maybe borrowing money to buy a car or borrowing money to buy a home, you know, nobody's doing any of that right now. So these are all part of the overall implementation or support that the government has put into place to try and uh, help us come back out of this in a strong way. And uh, so there'll be some interesting, interesting, I think, opportunities as we think about recovery period and how long will interest rates stay down as well. That's going to be an interesting question. And also from those that are using line of credits or business line of credits, they're always based on the prime rate, and as Andy mentioned, it was 2.45. So quite often you, might, you may be very fortunate. You have a fantastic uh, you know, interest rate where it's actually at prime. But most people are prime plus a quarter, quarter or prime plus a half or prime plus one. And at the end of the day, your interest costs have now gone down um, by that 1.5%. Now, what it's also doing, it's not necessarily stimulating the economy, but it's delaying when people may run out of money. So it'll keep their expenses a little lower because that's a sizable amount of interest because most times a lot of the businesses are run on just paying interest only. So if they've dropped it from 3.95 to 2.45, that's pretty much a third of your interest costs have now gone down. So if you've got a very large line of credit and you now have got a a discount of a third of your interest, that means your cash flow um, may be able to sustain the lack of business you're currently getting too. And I just wanted to add one more thing, too, is that if you think back to the 2008 and nine financial crisis and Canada overall sort of skirted a lot of the big, hard uh, choices that had to be made economically, and, and we were not too bad off. But as a result, Canadians have ramped up the amount of debt they have mm-hmm. to uh, substantially, uh, probably the highest levels we've seen ever in Canada. 
so as a result, our consumer, the individual out there, is very highly leveraged. They've got a lot of debt on the books. And uh, so this is not a time to be borrowing more money. Uh, <laughs> I think this is a time to take that interest relief in the short term uh, if, if, as to try and cushion you through the next several months. But, uh, but the next focus as the economy starts to return back to normal is to continue to f- have a focus and a game plan, a financial plan around how you're addressing your debt and how to continue to reduce your debt uh, in the short term uh, as best you can. And, you know, as Andy mentioned, Canada didn't hit the as much as for as the cash flow in terms of the housing crisis, the financial crisis, as in the 0809. And we went on quite the spending spree way before the U.S. did. So, and they, they were kind of you know stocking their money away and actually paying down let debt, which is called deleveraging. Canada did a little bit of that, but not nearly to the same extent. So. We've, we've, as Andy mentioned, we've gone into a lot more debt. And to the point that, uh, you know, this is, definitely helps, but it may actually make people look at a budget a little bit more carefully and suggest, okay, maybe we've got to play things a little differently. Um, that being said, a lot of this debt is housing debt, which means people are out buying houses, which is, uh, you know, when the interest rates got so low that it encouraged people to, I can afford these payments. So they went and bought a little bit, uh, a slightly larger house. So... It's kind of a, which should I buy, um, I get a house, but for the personal debt, whether it's car debt, um, or even worse, is credit card debt. Even though the prime rate has gone down, credit card rates have not gone down. And I know it's one of the things that uh, has been on the topic conversation the last two weeks. Are you surprised that hasn't been the case? Should we see that? Sorry, what's that? Should we see those credit card rates come down? Do the banks owe the public something here? Well, they're, they're always saying it's a higher risk debt, and they often have credit losses, so that's why their rates are so high. But uh, that being said, it, it doesn't seem to matter what the interest rates are, because their costs are the same. And therefore, when interest rates went up to 3 or 4%, they didn't raise the credit card rates. But now that they've lowered the prime, they're not lowering the credit card rates, and they, there's a massive margin right now of almost 20% between the prime rate and the credit card rate. And then if you even go further than that, um, you know, the um, pay- payday loans, um, those, those institutions, I did, I did see there's an uptick in the use of those recently, which, again, are my pet peeve, and I'd rather see people use credit cards in those places. For sure. And I, I don't know if I was to add one more chapter to this discussion. I would, I would think, as we think about down the road, and where, as interest rates are at, again, all-time lows. And this is, this is basically a 40-year cycle that we've seen since the 80s, this continuous decline of interest rates to the point we're at right now. So, you know, the biggest concern and the biggest use for interest rates is to control inflation. And right now, we don't have a lot of inflation in our system, but with all of the stimulus that governments worldwide are putting into place with central banks lowering interest rates and creating uh, financial fiscal support systems. There are a lot of tailwinds once this thing comes to an end in terms of economic activity. Mm -hmm. And as a result, if we start to see inflation rearing its head, then they're going to have to deal with that. And the one way they'll deal with that is by increasing interest rates. And that helps fight inflation. 
So they'll have to balance the risk and reward of increasing interest rates to control inflation, where at the same time wanting to keep the economy growing and recovering from this crisis as well. So it's going to be an interesting time in terms of interest rates in the next chapter as we see us come out of the end of this. On the note of interest rates, uh, any idea how long after this before they shoot up again? Will it be immediate? Will it be a, a slow, gradual thing when this all does turn around? I think we've got some time on our hands. And, uh, you know, this is a discussion Don and I have had on the radio over the last five years, I think, talking about, oh, I think interest rates are going to start to rise. Oh, nope, something, <laughs> something else came along, and no, nope, they're not going to rise. And then, um, so it's been, uh, it's been a very difficult one to predict. But um, I think the only concern, if people, if we start to hear about cost of living going up, about wages going up, uh, and those are significant, then there's going to be a push by central banks to consider raising interest rates back to a, a neutral position, which is probably means clawing back this 1.5% they've given us sometime in the next couple of years. And what about uh, how many, how low can this go? How many more tools are there in the toolbox here? Well, that's a, that's a good question. You know, you look back to last year, 2019, where we anticipated interest rates to rise during the year. And most experts would agree that interest rates would be rising. The economy was booming. And the president of the U.S. kept putting pressure on, on his banks, um, saying, we want interest rates lower. We want this economy to go even hotter, basically. And they kept kind of stopping it, and then finally they kind of gave in and said, okay, there's been a slowdown slightly in, in the economic activity, so we dropped it a bit. Normally speaking, when, when things are going well, they really don't touch the interest rates because they do want to leave that tool in the tool chest, more or less, to say, I want to use that in case there's ever a recession. And they don't want to use that too early. Well, they had already dropped rates throughout the year, and now here we are and we're pretty much getting back to where we were in 2008, 2009. But again, at this stage, as Andy said right off the get-go, this isn't really a solution. No financial solution is going to help right now because nobody's out there spending any money. People are isolating, as we are. Uh, we're sitting, <laughs> I don't know about you and you and Andy, I'm sitting in my kitchen right now looking out the window. It's a totally different view than we normally look at in, in terms of uh, all getting together on our, I'd on say our show. I'd say it's a better one, wouldn't you? as far as views go. And uh, that being said, I don't know about any dogs running through or whatever, so it, it could be interesting that way. But that being the case, you know, once we get back out, then those interest rates will, will have, a, have a role to play, as well as the, the lower gasoline prices because of that going on. Um, so all of a sudden people will have more money in their pocket. And not to mention they haven't been spending any money. So if they're fortunate not, not to have lost their job during this period of time, they'll have more money in their bank account. Um, that being said, I do see a lot of people adding to their portfolios right now because prices are obviously lower in terms of the stock markets. In the last twenty, you know, in the last few weeks, they've dropped twenty-five percent. So you're seeing some people are using that extra cash to invest in their tax-free savings accounts, which is a great strategy, um, or they're what, or just adding to their portfolio. But for the other ones that are not working. All these things of lowering interest rates, keeping costs down, uh, you can probably, for a lot of people, they can live on 75% of what they used to make because they're not doing a lot right now. 
We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows or feel free to ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Uh, gentlemen, obviously a lot of people concerned about their portfolios at this time, especially if you are retired or, or at that age where you're going into retirement. What are people to do at this time? What, what, is it best just to sit on your hands or what do you do through these trying times? That's, a, that's kind of a million dollar question, which is really the same thing we've done all the time the market goes down. It's just unfortunately what happens with the markets. They do have bear markets which are negative markets. When, a bear market officially is when the market drops by over 20%. So we have now passed that. So we officially ended the bull market once this uh, COVID-19 had started. And that didn't take long. It was one of the fastest bear markets to get going, period. It, was, it might be record-setting. But in that time, you say, okay, what do I do? And a lot of people think, well, maybe I should change my portfolio. So there's so many, so many um, articles and and the analysis on the markets, and the one I'm looking at right now is one that went from 1990 to 2019. So this is a 30-year span. Now, in that span, the Toronto stock market averaged, without dividends, 5%. Okay, so it didn't include dividends. So with dividends, that might have been 7%, because it's usually around 2% dividends. The Standard & Poor's 500, which is the U.S. stock market, averaged 7.7% again, excluding dividends. So had you just put it in there and not done anything in that 30-year period? Now, I've got to say, there's a lot of stuff that went on in this 30-year period. I know we're experiencing the COVID-19 currently, but there was the Asian flu, they called it, the tech meltdown, the Y2K, of course, the 0809 crisis. We could go different wars that went on. We could go on and on. There's so many different things that took place during this time. And there had been many bear markets in the past that had dropped the market up to 43%, such as the one in 0809. So this is not something that has not taken place before in terms of markets going down. But that being said, if you had just missed 10 days out of those 30 years, your rate of return on the Toronto stock market went from 5% to 2.9%, a drop of 2.1%. So that's a a sizable drop. Um, It actually works out by... Uh, a 45% drop in terms of your, your performance. Now, on the same token, if the, um, the Standard & Poor's 500, the U.S. stock market, it dropped from 7.7% to 5.3%, a similar drop in terms of the percentage drop. So they both dropped by just over 2%, and that's just missing 10 days. Now, I actually figure, how many days are there in 30 years? Turns out there's 10,000... 950 days in 30 years. And if you happen to miss the 10 best days, 
your return went down considerably. That that's, works out to missing one good day every three years. You have to pick out the mm. one day per 1,095 days. I don't know about you, but um, I'm not much of a gambler, but I wouldn't take those odds at all. Those, those are shocking odds. So it reduced your return. So I, I took a look at this a little further. Let's say you had $100,000 and you put in the Toronto stock market and you put that in 1990, and you got 5% over 30 years, you would have received $432,000 30 years later. Now, if you missed the 10 best days, you now would have only received 235000 a drop of $196,000. That's a massive difference. That's a 45% drop in the amount of money you'd receive after these 30 years just by simply missing the 10 best days. The same thing could be said about the Standard Poor's 500. The 7.7% return would have yielded you uh, from a $100,000 investment would have grown to 925000 versus missing the 10 days, you would have got a 5.3% return, would have been down to 470000 A difference of 49% difference on your return. And therefore, you would end up costing you 454000 Now, I actually say costing because... This is the opportunity cost by moving your money around. People often look at cost saying, you know, my, look at how much my money has dropped in value. That is a cost. Well, the greatest cost is by not getting the uptick, too, because it's the money that you didn't even know you were going to make. So on a 50-50 portfolio, which most people have, so if you went, say, half in Canada, half in U.S., the bottom line is you stuck hundred grand in, and didn't you went basically into a, a coma? You went and got six hundred and seventy-eight thousand versus three hundred and fifty-three thousand, practically half, just by missing those ten days. So it's kind of interesting. There's this. They did a zombie study, and and really this story just will not die. Somebody created this study. It was, it was from uh, Fidelity out of Australia, and it found out that the clients that had accounts that they lost, um, basically they didn't know the money was there, had a higher rate of return than the people that had active accounts. Mm-hmm. Now, it turned out that this whole zombie study would not, <laughs> was not true. It just keeps coming up and Fidelity keeps uh, saying, okay, that is not a true story. But it actually, if you actually worked it backwards, you'd actually think, okay, if you literally did not touch your money um, and just let it go through these ups and downs, you had a far better return than the people that actually moved the money around. And that's been shown time and time again. I know Andy and I have talked about it um, through things that we call behavior gap. And that behavior gap is the gap portion is the amount you would have got if you left it alone versus what you did get by taking your money out and trying to put it on the sidelines and wait for a better time to invest. So at the end of the day, they say, basically, trading is hazardous to your wealth. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, and uh, but of course, it's different this time, Don, isn't it? Oh, and, of course uh, it's different. And this is uh, a common feeling that everybody has in the sense that it, you know, it, it, it could go down much further, and that's very possible. Uh, and, volatil- and volatility is certainly going to continue to be very high. I mean, we've, we're seeing 10% swings in the valuation of stock markets in the course of a day. And these are broad-based declines or increases. And what I mean by that is that it's not 
industry specific. It is every single company. It doesn't matter whether you sell oil or you're uh, Google and making uh, doing internet <laughs> uh, uh, commerce. It it's been every company, and so the opportunities as a result of that have been remarkable in the sense that, and this is, as Don and I mentioned before, we were having weekly conference calls with the investment management teams of our various uh, portfolios, and they're sharing with us some of the information and the details about what's going on behind the scenes, and these are managed portfolios. These aren't passive ETFs. These are investments that are being reviewed and with an emphasis on protecting capital and taking advantage of opportunities right now. And one story that was shared, which was amazing to me, and Don, you and I were talking about this, is that the one manager um, through, from Fidelity was talking about how in 1998, and, and their basic philosophy is they have what they call the Dream Team 400. And the Dream Team 400 is 400 worldwide companies from around the world, anywhere in the world, that they feel are the best companies that they want to hold in their portfolio. The problem is they can't hold all of them, so they have to make the best choices. But when an opportunity comes up and one of those 400 dream team companies has gone down in value and presents an opportunity for them to buy, they'll jump in. They'll replace it with some, uh, from something else. And they, an example they used was there was a position and they didn't give specifics because we're, we're not allowed to do that, but there was a company sold in 1998, right? So 22 years ago, and they've been waiting to get back into that. They bought it two weeks ago. Hmm. And, uh, and the amount of activity going on behind the scenes, for example, the turnover in a stock portfolio where they're changing positions within a portfolio or adding to or decreasing, that often takes 18 months, typically to for something like that to occur. That's happened in as little as three weeks. The last three weeks, there's been an opportunity to replace and, and get into these dream team companies that wasn't, didn't exist before. So then the next step, I mean, people feel uncomfortable. We were wondering how long is it going to take? And we've talked about this recovery, and it's the alphabet soup, right? <laughs> is it going to be a V? Is it going to be an L? Is it going to be a W? Is it going to be a U? And and these are all the different sort of acronyms used to describe how quickly economic activity will, will come back. And if you can imagine in the V, right, where it goes down sharply and then it comes up sharply, that obviously would be an ideal scenario. There's the L where it goes down and it just stays down and it doesn't come back. And in almost unanimously, the investment management teams were, are reflecting on it and considering it to be a U. So there's this decline we bottom out, and then we climb back up again at the other end. You know, we have 30% unemployment right now. So you're getting you know, the amount of unemployment. That could be as high as 30%. And it's going to take a while to ramp up the supply chains and get everything back up to speed in terms of factories and operations. And probably the biggest component of where this can turn around quickly is our capacity to develop a vaccine or superior testing because it's only going to we need the confidence of the consumer to come back and that confidence is going to be eroded if we don't have a way to deal with getting rid of the virus or protecting ourselves from the virus who wants to go back out and into the public and get exposed 
So our capacity to be able to test effectively, and we feel that the, the sense from that roundtable was that we're going to see a vaccine much sooner than anyone is anticipating, and possibly even by the end of the year. But if we have a if we have a vaccine in place, we have strong testing, and people know it's going to either be it's been eradicated or we're going to be able to go out into the public again and be safe. Then you will see that economic activity ramp up quickly. So it, it appears as if social distancing is the key factor here uh, in triggering all of this to the uptick again. It's once we can get out. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We need to be able to get back to normal. And, and I think as time goes on, we're going to all be a little more itchy about getting back to normal. <laughs> and uh, But that confidence around being able to go back out and resume our normal activities is the key underlying piece. And we were talking about sort of the three legs of the stool to get that confidence back. And the first one is intervention on a fiscal front. So this is the uh, capacity of governments to give support to businesses, to uh, make sure there's liquidity in the system for, um, for retaining loans, etc. The second leg of the stool is fiscal relief for the unemployed. And this is, um, uh, you know, a government direct, and right around the world, we're seeing these interventions both fiscally from a, a corporate standpoint and also for the individual. And as I said, the third leg of this stool is this: the, the, where is the virus going, the, the, the progression of this virus, and the clarity. And I think in the next three to four weeks, we're going to have a lot more answers to that. And uh, if we can get that third leg of the stool sort of clarified and a lot more confidence around it, uh, I think we're going to be in great shape. Lots of, lots of really good tailwinds from the economic standpoint if we can get that third leg uh, figured out. Yes, absolutely. And you... We are going to be getting our, our quarterly statements soon for those uh, listeners that are getting quarterly statements. And obviously this uh, quarterly statement is not going to look that great. So um, two, two things to do with that quarterly statement. Uh, understand you're going to expect to see a drop and uh, be prepared for that. It, again, it just means that we've dropped in that quarter. Don't try to create a trend that, oh, wow, well, it's going down or it's going up. I've often told clients in the past when the stock market – has gone up, um, say, 10%, they'll say, oh, wow, the stock market's really going up. Says, so, no, no, it's gone up. We have no idea what it's going to do in the next week or two or, or months. Um, it generally it has an upward trend always. But the same token, when the market drops, it has a, it's not going down, it's gone down. In fact, we don't even know if it was the bottom just last week when, it, uh, when the Dow Jones was under 20,000, and it since has uh, recovered quite a bit. And as Andy pointed out, how often do you get back-to-back days of going down 10% and then going up the following day 10%? Um, and in fact, for that matter, quite often you're having days throughout the day where it's dropped 5% in one part of the day and then up 5% during the day. So you're, you're having a lot of uh, volatility. It seemed to have simmered down a bit now. It's, it's kind of found where the bottom is now and just waiting for news. But... To be, this is a perfect situation for active managers. And I do know, um, I've been looking up, and I wonder how the ETF area is doing. And anybody in ETFs has certainly um, had more volatility because there's a lot more selling. In fact, they're actually were having a hard time getting the price to correlate with the market because there's so much volatility. And there's sometimes a leg of up to 20% 
in certain areas, depending on which type of ETF you had. So you're seeing a lot of those very inexpensive type of management schemes where you're saying, okay, it only costs, say, 0.5% to manage your money. And that's usually in an ETF. In fact, I would always say it's always in an ETF because you're not paying an active manager to pick and choose stocks. And as Andy pointed out, here's where the active managers talk about patience, 22 years waiting for a stock to drop low enough in price that it now showed up on their screen as a buy for them. So this is what active management's all about, and to turn over 20% of a portfolio that can have billions of dollars in it and turn over 20% of that within three weeks, which would normally take one, one to one and a half years, that, that's phenomenal. So it is creating huge opportunities, and for those uh, people that are patient and will look at this with the lens of, okay, I've got a, a, a 10-year span or a 20-year span of my retirement. This is a blip or maybe it be an opportunity. That's the lens you should be looking at. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at their website at andyanddon.com. Uh, obviously, now, gentlemen, we're in tax season, although it has been extended certainly this year. But with what's going on in with COVID-19 and, and the situation that we're all experiencing uh, this year, how will that change tax planning for next year? Great question. And uh, one of the items that, uh, that I was reviewing recently was the opportunity. Now, this is, of course, because we're all working from home. I've been asked to work from home unless we're essential services. Uh, but there is an opportunity to actually claim some of your home expenses against your income if you are required to work from home for a specific period of time. Now, there are two conditions. It doesn't matter if you're an employee or self-employed, but there are two conditions. One is your home uh, is your principal place of work, meaning that you're required to spend more than half your time working from home. Or two, you use a particular room or rooms exclusively for earning employment income. And, uh, and generally, you would meet your customers on a regular basis at your place of, of home. Now, we know that people can't meet with their customers uh, face-to-face anymore. Video conferencing is the, or telephone is the way to go. So I don't think the tax courts will uh, argue with anything on that front. But essentially, the opportunity then is if you are working from home now, and you've, you're using one of your bedrooms or a room in the basement, you now have the opportunity to deduct from your income the cost of maintaining and operating your home. And this is done through a, a form called the T-2200. And the T-2200 is something that your employer must sign, and they have to, so they have to certify that they're requiring you to work from home. And in that, uh, there's one item, question 10, which on that form, which uh, they would have to tick off that they're saying that they want you to work from home 
uh, for a specific period of time, uh, and that's at least half of the time in a in a within the period of a year. So, I think the next couple of months are going to qualify for this. And so, if I were to give you an example, um, let's say you make sixty thousand a year, and so it's about five thousand a month, and you're working from home and you have seven rooms in your home, and you're using one of those for operating and maintaining your employment. So if it costs you about, let's say it costs you $18,000 a year to run your home between heat, hydro, interest expenses, taxes, insurance, etc., it's about $1,500 a month. If, you're in, uh, if we're in this for three months, that's $4,500 of house expenses that you'd have, then you deduct, uh, you take one-seventh of that, approximately 15%, which would be $675, and that would be deductible against your income. And uh, if you make $60,000, you are in a 30% marginal tax bracket, so it's going to save you a little over $200 of tax this year. So for 2020, it's going to be important just to have an eye on what are your home expenses and your ability to track those, because a lot of people may never have had to do this before, but keeping track of what it costs to operate the home, and there are a list of different items that are included in that. And then um, uh, figuring out how many rooms you have in your home, which room you're using, and then all of this would be done and claimed on the T2200 and the also the T, <clears throat> sorry, the T 777, which is where you claim your expenses. So you can look that up. Basically, it is the home office uh, deduction form T2200. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, there are a lot of new benefits that have been announced. For example, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, which is up to $2,000 a month for four months. And um, that's a monthly payment that people would be entitled to, whether you're eligible for EI or you're not eligible for EI if you're self-employed, etc. And I think one of the most important things on that, and I'm going to just shout out, is that you must have a My CRA account, a My account through CRA. So again, it's called My Account through CRA, Canada Revenue Agency. And I would encourage everybody, if you haven't, this doesn't mean. When you file your tax return, you know, oh, you get an electronic, you know, your refund gets deposited to your bank account. That doesn't mean you have a My CRA or My Account through CRA. Uh, so a, a My Account through CRA will also allow you to access My Service Canada account, which is where all the EI benefits are distributed, and you can apply through that. So go to um, uh, the Canada Revenue Agency, look, search for My Account. And you're going to need, uh, there's a couple of ways to sign up. Option one is using uh, a logging in through your online banking. And option two, which is just sort of a traditional method where you would go and fill out the form that they have, and you would need your social insurance number, postal code, date of birth. They will randomly ask you a line number from your 2018 tax return. For example, they might say, what was line 121? This is just a security way of identifying who you are. And then you'll be mailed a, you'll be mailed a CRA security code to your address on file, and that takes about five to ten business days. So you create a user ID, a password. You have a you have to create a security question list. So there's a number of things steps to do to get this done. You need to do it. It's important. It's going to give you access to all of these benefits which are being discussed by the government. And uh, so <clears throat> again. My, CR, uh, my account through CRA, 
and that will also give you access to the My Service Canada account all through one login. And uh, to say the process can take up to five to ten business days to get that all set up. So I encourage people to get on that ASAP to be able to take advantage of all these benefits that are coming our way. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out the website at andyanddon.com. You can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button or old archive shows or call in, or call now and leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. We're talking about bulls and bears here to end off. Yes, and we just got our annual uh, it's called the big picture and it goes all it's basically a massive chart of everything that's taken place from 1934 right until to, uh, the end of 1990 uh, sorry to, to 2020 so the end of uh, 2019 and it took everything that you can imagine in there from longevity to different investments and it's always interesting you know what has taken place in all these years it's, it's getting close to i guess uh, 90 years now so it, it's uh the one thing is, though, it does talk about the bull markets and the bear markets. And you may hear that all the time, what's a bull market, what's a bear market. And normally, people look at it, and it's just, uh, we've been living in a bull market for so long that people have forgotten what a bear market even is. And it's basically a bear market, I'll start with that, is when the market drops by 20% from the height of, of the, bear mar- of the uh, bull market. So, and that took place February 19th, funny enough, was not that long ago, was when the Dow Jones hit the all-time high. And so it's gone down 20% past that, and it's gone down even further. That, so that was the, that then there swore is the line in the sand where the, bear, the bull market stopped and the bear market started. And the bull market, we didn't, went all the way through all the way through the 2010 to 2020s, and we didn't have anything stopping us. That being the case, we did have a drop there at the end of 2018. It dropped by 19.8% in the month of December, but it didn't quite make 20%, so it wasn't called a bear market. So just to get a perspective how common these are, if you start in, say, the 1940s, um, the there was a bull market. It lasted for 27 months and went up 89% in that period of time. Then, in the, and then there was a bear market, took over, basically left from the 30s. Now, the 30s wasn't a great period of time. There was a bear market that lasted 39 months and went down 42%. And uh, so where one kind of stops, the other one starts. So the 50s, again, uh, there was a bear market lasted only seven months and went down 27%. But then the bull market continued all the way through the 40s. In fact, there was a 203-month bull market that started in the 40s, went into the 50s, and it went 967% from the bottom to the top, which worked out to a 15% per year return. Then we got into the 60s. 
That would be when the three of us were being uh, born. And the 60s, there was uh, a bull market that lasted 137 months, went up 285%, average 13% a year. But the bear market then had a quick bear market, 13 months, down 25%. So this is common all the way through. And I can go through each one here. But the one I found interesting, if we go to the latest, you had a bear market in the 2000s that lasted 25 months, and it dropped 43%. That was right at the beginning of the 2000s, where there was the Y2K, there was a uh, technology kind of a meltdown then. Well, then came a nice bull market, went up six, in 68 months. It went up 168%, averaging 19% per year, followed by the 0809 crisis. So you had two bear markets in the 2000s, and in nine months it went down 43%. So in that one decade, it, the bear market, there was two bear markets dropping 43%. Um, in just one 10-year period of time. So it's as much as no anybody really doesn't want to go through these, it's just part of the yin and yang of the stock markets. Now, when you look at it and say, well, the average return of investments over all those years from 1934, the U.S. stock market has averaged 11.4%. And the Canadian stock market's averaged 96 and so if you had an aggressive portfolio, which would have been 40% uh, Canadian stocks, 25% U.S., 25% international, basically Europe, and, and maybe some Japan and Asia, and 10% U.S. smaller companies, that would be considered an aggressive portfolio because there's nothing, there's no fixed income. You would have averaged 10.6% per year return. So a nice balanced portfolio of all equities did quite well. The kicker here, though, is inflation was really, it was only 3.5% during that whole period of time. So in the long run, the stock markets generally average about 6% to 7% above inflation. And that's been a steady for 200-year charts, never mind just the last 90 years here. So you do have to take the good with the bad, but when it's all said and done, as long as you kind of hang in there, you'll end up with the average. Now, a moderate portfolio is when you have some bonds, and most people aren't 100% in equities. They'll have some bonds, real estate, fixed income, things that aren't really linked to the stock market. And when you'd have that, they add a lot of cushion. Now, you also hurt your return. So a moderate portfolio, instead of averaging as well as the, the aggressive portfolio, a moderate portfolio averaged 8.8% versus an aggressive one averaging 10.6. So that's a 2% difference in return, basically. But on the downside, there isn't nearly as many negative years. And when there are negative years, they don't go down as much. So they went through this period of, from 1935, and as far as negative years go, if you had a U.S. stock market, you had 21% of the time you were in a negative year. So basically, one out of five years were negative. Same with the Canadian market, 31% for international markets. But if you're in the, a moderate portfolio, you're, you only had 16.5%. So about one in every six years, approximately, was negative. But as far as how much it went down, the U.S. and Canadian stock markets went down about 11% on average on negative years, whereas the moderate portfolio only went down 5.4%. So the whole point of diversifying really shows up in terms of the negative years, not only how many you have, 
but really the biggest one is how much it goes down. And this showed in 08, 09 when you know, I looked at a moderate portfolio for clients, and instead of going down 40% like the stock market did, our clients generally went down 15 to 20%. Again, nobody wants to go down, but then on the recovery, it, so you didn't go down as much, it doesn't also go up as fast either. But at the end of the day, you end up with a lot less volatility, and that's really what risk is about, and you end up probably sleeping a little, well, a little better at night and accomplishing your financial goal. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget about the website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Stay safe and wash your hands. Okay. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> thanks. Same to you. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.